0: And this day is sort of a bittersweet day for me. I have mixed emotions. You know the old joke, right, about mixed emotions. It's defined as seeing your mother-in-law drive off the cliff in your Mercedes. (laughs) (laughs) My wife's mother was a lovely, dear Christian woman who passed away about 17 years ago. So I can't really laugh at that joke because if I put her in the car, it doesn't feel right. Now, when I put Ken in the car... And somehow doing that, the whole thing comes together for me. But anyway, today is a day of mixed emotions. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's open up our Bibles in Genesis and let's celebrate the, the conclusion of this study. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness. We will congratulate ourselves at times, Father, for what we achieve in a spiritual way, for our prayer life, for our study life, for our service to another. We take Pride even in those things. But Father, as we come to the end of something like Genesis and recognize how long it took for us to give proper attention to the text, and how many weeks and how many hours, and when we consider all the ways that could have been interrupted or may never have come to pass in the first place, we're forced to recognize that it is by your hand and your faithfulness and by your diligence that you gave us us that opportunity and made it possible to complete what we began. We don't take pride in it, Father. We take gratitude and, and satisfaction in it. We take the opportunity to thank you for it. We can't begin to know, Father, what the Word has done or what it can do and will do in our lives. We only know that if we are good to sit at your feet, then you can do all things. And we thank you, Father, that We've had that opportunity. We don't want it to end. We want to sit with you, Father, here and now and in face-to-face when the day comes. But we are satisfied, Father, for what you have given us so far. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after two years, five months, and 30 days, 109 lessons, for a total of over 71 hours of me talking... We reached the end of the book of Genesis and not a moment too soon, I should add. This is the fourth time that I've taught through the entire book of Genesis in my relatively short career of teaching the Bible. It is my favorite book of the Bible. It's the book that was being taught when the Lord called me to faith in the gospel. It was the first book of the Bible I ever studied. It was the first book of the Bible I ever attempted to teach. And this may well be the last time I have an opportunity to teach it. So I am experiencing very mixed emotion as I finish the book with you today. And I always look forward to the end of a study. I mean, that's always what you want as you start something. You want to get that sense of accomplishment of finishing what you started. But I'm also a bit melancholy at the thought of it this morning because As I said, I may be finishing Genesis in this way, teaching it to a crowd for the final time in my life. And that's because there are many untaught books of scripture that cannot await and the Lord's return certainly won't. So so for all of that melodrama, I just want to note that I approach what I have done in this study for the last 49 chapters with an expectation that I would give you my best understanding of the book. And I really had in my heart the desire to go through it in this fourth occasion with an attempt to do it justice to its depth and to its significance as God has revealed it to us. And I am certain that I have not done that. I'm also certain that every Bible teacher who endeavors to teach any book of the Bible comes with that same intent. But nevertheless, I've done my best and we're at the end. Israel is secure, planted in Egypt. Joseph is reconciled with his family. And as we saw last week, Jacob has died. So all that remains in the book of Genesis is to put... Jacob's body to rest and likewise his son Joseph. And that's what we do today in chapter 50. With Jacob's passing, the scene is set for what comes now in this chapter. And in particular, we're going to see the brothers of Joseph learning to face life without their father, without the patriarch. And then as Joseph's life comes to an end, we get to see one more time an evidence of his faith in the way his life concludes and in the instructions he gives to his family. It really sets the stage for the book of Exodus. So if you do have an interest in knowing what comes next, well, please join us there. But for now, let's go to chapter 50. We'll start in verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. So Joseph mourns his father's passing, and that's certainly no surprise in that. There's obvious sadness. There's obvious loss for Joseph. And you can know from Joseph's actions, and you can see in his words, that this grieving was not the same, not the kind of mourning that those who have no hope would experience. This is a kind of grieving that is different for the believer. Paul taught this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, speaking to the church Paul said this, he said, for we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. And that's a word that means died. So he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, well, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, those who have died. So Paul taught the church that though it's natural for us to grieve for the loss of a loved one, our grieving is to be entirely different than the kind of grieving that is experienced by those who, Paul says, have no hope, have no hope. We grieve because we grieve the separation that death creates, at least temporarily. And of course, we often grieve that ugly process of death, depending on the nature of the person's circumstances. It can be a very difficult process. We understand that. But our grieving should be tempered, as Joseph's was, by the reality of what we know death leads to. We know the Lord has promised that for the believer, paradise begins as soon as the death of the body takes hold. I think of the story of Lazarus. You know the story in John's Gospel, of course. The friend of Jesus, Lazarus has died, Jesus goes later, three days after the death, and raises Lazarus. And that story is interesting because it never really shares with us Lazarus' own reaction to his own raising. Everyone else is thrilled, but I wonder if Lazarus was a little annoyed at the prospect of being brought back. My guess is he might have been annoyed, he might have been disappointed to find out not only does he have to go through death again, but in the meantime he has to hang around here waiting for it, when he had a much better option on the other side. I can assure you those who die in Christ aren't missing us nearly as much as we are missing them. And not for any lack of love, but because of the glory that they are experiencing in what God has prepared for them and for us. The Lord's promise is that one day we will all, by faith, enjoy a new life in a resurrected body, and with that, the company of those who shared our faith. So though I cannot tell you what you will look like, And I can't exactly be certain how we will know each other. I can tell you by the authority of what's written in God's word that there will be an opportunity to recognize and be aware of who is with us and who they were when we knew them here. So truly, death for the believer is with hope because it knows that death is temporarily a separating force, not permanently. But for the unbeliever, for the one who has no such hope, Death truly is separation forever. If we know of someone who dies in this life not having faith in Christ, we have seen the last of them. And for those who are left behind, those who have no hope, those without faith who have lost a loved one, the absence of any such assurance about what comes next and about whether there will ever be a reconciliation, that creates unreconcilable grief. There's no way to reconcile that. There's no way to salve that wound. Even time, I think, does little good because time just brings us closer to that same moment in our own life and the renewed concern of what comes next. But faith rescues us, Paul says, from that hopelessness, or so it should. And Joseph's actions and what he does next with his father's body reveals his hope In the Lord's promise concerning resurrection, first, notice he commands his servants, it says, to embalm his father. Now, embalming of bodies in Egypt is nothing new, and I'm sure you already knew that. But consider that is not a normal practice in Israel. There's no history, there's no pattern, there's no ritual in Israel's history to suggest that embalming would have been the natural thing to do. So though they were in Egypt at the time, there's no evidence that anyone else in Israel was ever embalmed before or after this moment, except for... Joseph. And in Joseph's case, it's for the same exact reason, because he had lived for 17 years with his father. Naturally, that meant he was anxious to have a mummy. And so he had his it's an old one, but it works once in a while. The real answer is faith. Joseph shares his father's faith in the Lord's promise of resurrection. And so Having promised his father earlier that he would take Jacob's body and put it back in the cave where Jacob wanted to be buried. Why? Because that was where the family was buried. Because they wanted to show that they trusted in God's promise to resurrect them in the land. So they wanted to be buried where they expected to come back to life. It was a display of faith in God's promise. Had Joseph not shared in that faith, had he not agreed with his father's outlook, he wouldn't have taken the oath. He wouldn't have had any obligation to go through with this process of embalming. The whole thing is tied to his faith in God's promises. That with the embalming comes the opportunity to move a body back to Canaan. If the body hadn't been preserved in this way, they never could have transported it back into the land. So that's his reason. That's his evidence of faith in that he was willing to embalm his father, which is not standard practice, so that he could return him as he desired, to demonstrate his faith in resurrection. Now, there is another unusual step to the way he does it. He doesn't do it the normal way. He uses physicians, we're told. Normally, they would use professional embalmers. We would call them today undertakers, people whose job it is to prepare a body. But in Egyptian methods, embalming was done as part of a religious ritual. So the normal embalmers would have been priests or some other agent of Egyptian pagan religion. And in the course of embalming the body, they would have said certain words and made certain prayers over the body, all in their pagan faith. Joseph wanted none of that for his father. So he went to a physician who knew how to do it, but wasn't going to do it with the ritual, and then asked that physician to take care of his father's body. And that can mean that Joseph safely was trying to steer clear of religious ritual in Egypt. Then, as the embalming takes place, we're told both Egypt and Israel mourn the standard period of mourning in Israel is 40 days, which happens to correspond to the length of time it took to embalm the body in this case. But in Egypt, their practice for mourning was to go 72 days, 72 days. That would have been the normal practice if you saw Pharaoh die or the Pharaoh's mother or somebody of prominence and significance in the culture, 72 days. You notice in this case, Joseph says 70 because in holding the, time of mourning to only 70 rather than to the normal 72, he leaves room for one additional day of mourning for both himself and for Pharaoh so that Jacob is not seen as being greater than either of them in the eyes of the people so that no one's mourning period would seem to be a challenge for the prominence of Pharaoh. It's also interesting, though, that in Israel's history, the numbers 40 and 70 have so much recurring significance that it would turn out that way, not 72, but 70. So after 70 days, Joseph's ready to fulfill his promise to his father. That takes us now to the burial of Jacob, verses 4 through 14. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Adad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Adad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore, it was named Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephraim the Hittite. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Well, Joseph asked permission to take. Jacob's body back to Canaan. So why does he do that? Why does Joseph feel the need to ask permission from Pharaoh to bury his father? Well, remember, it was Pharaoh that gave Israel permission to come into the land in the first place and to live in Goshen and to give them this good land. Now, the Pharaoh did that because he wanted Semites in the land to shore up his own political power, but also to hold on to Joseph's loyalty. He wanted Joseph to stick around indefinitely. But now look at what he's facing. If Joseph had walked out of the land without asking, How would Pharaoh have perceived it had Joseph not asked him in the first place? He would have looked up and seen literally the whole family of Israel walking out of the land, carrying Jacob back with them. And the only ones left were the ones too young to travel and their flocks. Well, easily, Pharaoh could have assumed that this was the last time he would ever see Israel. Think about it. The famine has been over for years. There's no reason they have to stay in Egypt at this point, at least not from Pharaoh's point of view. So Joseph doesn't want to incite Pharaoh's concern. And Joseph himself knows that the nation of Israel has to return. So he goes to Pharaoh. He doesn't even go personally, we're told. He goes through some other emissary. He speaks through the household of Pharaoh. Again, not wanting to upset Pharaoh and wanting to show him proper respect. And the words he says to be delivered are simple. I promised my dad I need to do this. Don't worry, I'm coming back. You see in verse 5, he says, I will return to Egypt. So Joseph has made the statement, I'm going, but I'm coming back. But that just begs a new question, right? Why doesn't he stay? For all the reasons I've already mentioned, why wouldn't he just stay in Canaan? Well, the answer again is his faith in God's word. Joseph knows that Israel is in Egypt because of God's plan. He knows it's all God's purpose. He also knows where that plan started. It started four generations, or it started generations earlier, not four, but it started generations earlier when God spoke to Abraham and said, for four generations, your family will be in Egypt, and then I will pull them out. Well, up to this point, only one generation has experienced the time in Egypt. So there's still three more to come. Joseph knows that. And so Joseph... Promises to return because he wants to obey God, not because he wants to please Pharaoh. Pharaoh agrees, of course, he says, you may go, but Pharaoh wants to make sure he comes back. And did you notice that in all the things that Pharaoh does? Look at what Pharaoh does. He sends along a bunch of his servants. He sends along elders of the land of Egypt. He sends along a guard of horsemen and chariots. Now, what he's doing is twofold. He's showing respect for Joseph's father, which I'm sure Joseph appreciated. But those people and those horsemen and those chariots, those all belong to Pharaoh. Those are Pharaoh's property. So if Joseph were to go to Canaan and have a change of heart and think, you know, it's not so bad here after all. Why don't we just stay put? He'd have to face the fact that he could be accused of stealing from Pharaoh because he's got all of Pharaoh's stuff. What's he going to do with that? That would give Pharaoh legitimate cause to chase him down. Just as what happened earlier when we saw Joseph pursue his brothers because they had taken the silver cup. That was reason enough to chase them down and pull them back. So in verse 9, we're told this whole family, all the chariots, the wagons, the servants, the horsemen, they all go. And it's a great procession, we're told. In fact, this is easily the greatest funeral procession recorded in all scripture. There's none greater. And the effect of all of this, of this great company engaging in all the mourning, etc., it catches the attention of all the locals, all the Canaanites. And they stop at a place that we know, based on the name, is on just the west bank of the Jordan River. So if you know in your mind the nation of Israel or the land that is traditionally called Israel, the eastmost border is the the River Jordan. They're just inside the border. They're just on the western bank of that river. And they're there, it says, for seven days because it's seven days for Joseph to mourn. There is Joseph and then, I think, in sympathy, the camp mourning with him. It's so pronounced that the locals come up with a name for the place based on what they see. They start calling it by this name that means the mourning of or the the meadow of the Egyptians. At this point in history, Egypt had conquered Canaan already. So this was a land that Egypt walked through freely anytime they wanted. What's not typical is for an Egyptian cavalry or Egyptian procession to make their way all the way up to bury someone of prominence in this land. There'd be no reason to do that. That's what caught their attention. And they named it accordingly. But what's interesting is the next time the inhabitants of Canaan will see the family of Israel on the western bank of the Jordan, it's going to be 40 years after the Exodus. And when they see it that time, that's when Joshua leads the people in to invade. And scripture tells us that in that time, there is also a lot of mourning, a lot of weeping and gnashing of teeth, so to speak. This time it happens from the Canaanites, not from the Israelites. And by the way, just as in this day, Joseph will accompany that procession as well. He just does it in a box in the same way that his father does it here. When the nation of Israel carries the bones of Joseph out of Egypt and into the land that God gave them. So now it's Jacob's burial. Joseph puts Jacob in the cave in the place where he has to be buried. He completes his mission in the way his father made him promise. And then as a family, they all return, it says, to Egypt And I have to think that Joseph returned in that family procession all the way walking into Egypt knowing that he was leading his family back to a period of slavery and oppression. For that's what has been said. That's what God promised. Nevertheless, he walked because he also knew another aspect of the promise, the second half, which was that God promised to deliver the nation in a future day under a future leader. And so Joseph walks in obedience out and back to fulfill God's purpose. Now, Jacob's death produces another set of consequences in this chapter. It's more than just mourning for the family. It becomes an issue of worry for his brothers. That's where we go next. Look at verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us? And pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive. I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's been 17 years since the family learned that Joseph was alive and reconciled to him. We've studied this. And at that time, back in 17 years ago, Joseph welcomed his brothers at the time. He welcomed them. He embraced them. He forgave them, we're told, of their transgressions against him. He set them up in Goshen. He has been very kind to the family from the beginning. So why now, after 17 years, do his brothers suddenly begin to worry about whether Joseph's going to do the right thing or not or be angry at them and take vengeance? Well, of course, the answer is Jacob's death, because in the last 17 years, Jacob being alive, he was the patriarch over the family. And the brothers may have assumed that during that time, Joseph's respect and his love for his own father had served to protect them from any retribution that Joseph might be harboring in his heart. But yet, perhaps in the back of Joseph's mind all of this time, he's been saying to himself, just wait till dad's gone. (laughs) And that's their concern. So now, as Jacob has died, the brothers thoughts, they immediately turn to this issue and they begin to wonder if Joseph's going to take retribution against them and have vengeance for them. That's just natural. By the way, that is the natural thing for powerful men, for kings, men in authority. This is what they do when they're presented with an opportunity to remove opposition or vanquish enemies. They take it every time because they'd be foolish to do otherwise, because there's always somebody else who wants their position. And so these brothers assume that a powerful man like Joseph is going to do what any other powerful man would do if an obstacle is removed. And so they worry. We're told they send word to Joseph concerning the supposed dying words of Jacob. Now, there is absolutely no reason to think these were actually Jacob's words. In fact, the whole sense of the passage would suggest strongly that they made this whole thing up. They're they're worried for their own skin. They figure, well, maybe dad's voice from the grave would be enough to convince Joseph not to harm us. So they invent this story. They concoct this whole last words thing. And then through uh, messengers, they deliver it to Joseph. And they're hoping to invoke in Joseph some kind of love and respect for his father and maybe some sense of obligation to take care of the brothers. What's ironic about this is if Joseph had been the type of person to take revenge on his brothers in the first place, then he would have also been the kind of man who couldn't care less about his father's dying words. He would have had the same ruthlessness despite what his father said. Joseph's not that kind of person. In fact, we're told he weeps. He cries at hearing his brother's concern. And then it says in verse 18, Then the brothers appeared before Joseph to make another appeal, a personal appeal. They come down and they bow at Joseph one more time, by the way, to fulfill Joseph's dreams. And they bow at him and they say, we are your servants. What that word literally means is we are your slaves. So they have already begun to assume that their life hangs in the balance. So they think, well, maybe if we change our status from brothers to slaves, that will give us uh, an opportunity to save our skin, to save our lives. And in this moment, the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph concludes with maybe the most powerful picture of Christ in the whole story of Joseph. Joseph's brothers, the sons of Israel. They appear before their kinsmen, this most powerful Lord. They declare themselves to be his slaves, his servants, and they feel a response of fear because they know they were responsible for such great harm against him in an earlier day. And they are worried that he's angry at them and they're worried that his response might be vengeance for what they did in the past. They know he has absolute power. No one will second guess him. He does not need a court's approval. He can make a decision by his own authority and if his decision is to take vengeance and destroy them, he has the right to do that. And so they are there asking for his mercy. The only question is, what lies in Joseph's heart? Vengeance or kindness? Wrath or mercy. And Joseph's response is what? He raises their thoughts from their own set of circumstances to the higher plane of God's purposes. He asks rhetorically, am I in God's place? In other words, do I own this plan? Do I own the outcome? The purpose in the question, of course, is to suggest the obvious answer. No, Joseph didn't design the plan. Joseph, therefore, does not own the outcome. God in heaven, Joseph says, has orchestrated these events from the very beginning. Yes, Joseph had a role. Yes, the brothers had a role. The outcome of all of their work was as God intended. Joseph says to his brothers, you know, you did harbor evil in your heart. Let's be clear about that. You harbored evil in your hearts towards me. You wanted to hurt me. You even wanted to kill me. You certainly wanted me out of the way. You were jealous of me. And because of that jealousy, it allowed your hearts to come to the point where you would be willing to rise up against your own kinsmen. For his part, Joseph, he was innocent from the very beginning all the way through. He suffered under his brother's sin. He endured the shame and the reproach of slavery. And yet he knew the whole time that it was the Lord who had made these things come to pass. And so he rested in God's sovereignty and God's authority. And so now, in this moment, Joseph tells his brothers that what you intended for evil, the Lord has always intended from the very beginning as something that would accomplish good according to his desires. And therefore, he says, he intended to bring about this present result. What is that present result? Joseph calls it out. He says it is so that many people would be alive. But that word for alive in Hebrew is a very interesting choice. There's other words that could have been used. But the one that's used here, it literally means... To come to life, to be healed, to be raised to life, to be resurrected is another way to define it. Joseph says this whole plan that was based on your sin and my innocence comes to the point of bringing many people to life. That's its intent. You know, Jesus was the innocent kinsman of Israel in the day he walked the earth. He was born and lived among his brothers for a time until they became jealous of him. And they harbored that jealousy, letting it turn into hatred. And their refusal to be ruled by him caused them to conspire against him. They rose up. They rejected his authority. They sent him to the cross. Jesus, for his part, was innocent from the very beginning. He endured all of that mistreatment because he knew that the Father in heaven had appointed him for this outcome for a greater good, both for Israel and for the world. Then in a day to come, in a day that has not yet even happened for us today, Israel will behold their Messiah, we're told. Triumphant, reigning, prepared to set up his kingdom on earth, returning for them in keeping with the promises of God. When that day comes, we're told that he will come with all power, all authority. He will be the judge. And when nothing stands in his way and he stares upon the children of Israel, the very ones who, because of their evil, sent him to death on the cross, what will he do? Will he vanquish his kinsmen? Will he set the record straight? Will he take vengeance as would be his right? Or will he show mercy? Well, the scriptures tell us, of course, that the Lord will come as Israel's deliverer. He will look upon God's people with mercy. Those who call upon his name in that last day, he will extend grace to them and he will welcome them into the kingdom. And in that day, I want you to consider what the mind of that Jewish person will think when we're talking about those who will be remaining alive in the same bodies we're in now, who have endured the tribulation, according to scripture, who are in Jerusalem Fearing for their lives and yet by the spirit made aware of Jesus as Messiah. they call upon him, mourning him, Zechariah tells us, as they do for an only child. Knowing that their forefathers are the ones who killed the very anointed one they've always waited for. And in that moment as Jesus returns, will they have some fear? What Israel intended for evil, the father in heaven intended for good. And as Jesus returns for them. He comes with a heart to reconcile and to reward. And as a result, the Lord will provide for them. You know, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. That's how its name, in fact, is used. But it's also a story of endings. Endings conceived by the Lord himself and written before the foundations of the earth. And if we're going to understand this book properly, then we have to acknowledge and understand and appreciate God's limitless sovereignty as it's displayed here and as it's been displayed throughout the pages of this book. God brings all things to good for his children, Paul tells us. But if that statement is to be understood and believed, then it stands to reason that all things must be under God's control. He cannot bring all things to good if he does not control all things, self-evidently. So God's way ahead of us, way ahead of us on everything. Long before Joseph and his brothers were even born, God was telling Abraham what they would do. And then he made it happen, just like he said he would. And when you and I can learn to live with eyes that see the Lord at work in every circumstance, knowing that his promises are going to be fulfilled, and live with that expectation in everything we do, when we reach that point in our lives, we've learned the lesson of Genesis. You've learned that the beginning leads to an end that's been designed Before the beginning ever started. Speaking of the end. I think it's time we finish. Let's look at the last set of verses. 22 through 26. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt. And he and his father's household. And Joseph. I'm sorry. Joseph stayed in Egypt. He and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir. The sons of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised an oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. It's interesting, Joseph lives another 54 years after Jacob dies in the land of Egypt. He does so long enough, we're told, to see his great-grandchildren born. So you have Manasseh giving birth to Machir and Machir giving birth to a man named Gilead, as you find later in the genealogies of Numbers. It's going to be Gilead's sons who are of the generation of Israel who leave in the Exodus. So Joseph sees all but the last generation who eventually leave the land. Joseph dies at the age of 110, we're told. I found it a bit interesting that I almost got us to 110 lessons. It's 109 today. I I could stretch this to next week. No, never mind. So Joseph dies at 110. That's another piece of evidence of God's sovereignty all by itself, because in Egyptian culture, the ideal length of a life, as they considered it, was 110. For whatever reason, they had arrived at that number as the perfect number. In fact, there are ancient Egyptian texts that have been found that they've been discovered in tombs or in ancient libraries, and they reveal no less than 27 references to this age, this age of 110, as proof that you are being favored by the gods if you die at that age. So the Lord brings Joseph's life to an end at 110. It would seem as though he intends to send a message to the culture of Egypt that this man was indeed honored by God. Finally, Joseph makes the same request of his family that his father had made of him. I don't want to be buried here. I want to be buried where I know one day I will live in the kingdom to come. So I want you to take my body out. But look at the statement he gives. He doesn't say, take me out right after I die. That might have been the natural expectation, much in the way Jacob was taken out right after he died. Joseph looks past that and he says, I don't want you to take me until you leave the land. When you are set free, as God has promised, that is the time for you to take me in my coffin and deposit me in the land. The book of Hebrews in chapter 11 points to this moment in Joseph's life as proof of his faith. That when Joseph died, he made the nation swear to take him out in that future day, proving to us that Joseph was convinced that God's word would be held true concerning the promises he gave to Abraham. And sure enough, in the fourth generation, the nation of Israel will have that opportunity I wonder what our legacy as a man or woman of God is going to be. When people reflect back on our lives, and for that matter, upon our deaths, what will that testimony look like? What will they bring to mind? Are they going to think about someone who lived their life faithfully keeping the promises of God, expecting them to be true? Is that the testimony we're going to have? Will our legacy be one of those who not only trusted in the Word of God, but by our lives led others to trust in the Word of God, to see it exemplified in our own lives? I hope so. Let's aspire to be Joseph. Let it be said we live with eyes for eternity. Let it be said that we were always looking forward to a country in heaven. Let it be said that we knew our reward would not be found on this earth. And our life reflected that. And let it be said we finished the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 31 months is probably not long enough to study this book. But it's certainly long enough for us for now. Thank you, Father, for all that you've revealed. Thank you for the opportunity to teach it. May this word go out and do the work you have intended for it. May hearts be changed. May lives be molded into the image of Christ. May the truth of your work in creation and in the ages to come be accepted within the nations. May it bring about the coming of your Lord according to your will and timing. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen.